but there is no positive evidence that this virus ever existed uh, in a lab to be subjected to gain of function research. So I find it highly, highly, highly likely that this is a a virus with a natural origins from a a wild animal Uh, and not theoretically impossible, but completely unsupported that it is something that leaked from a laboratory. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is David Quammen. He's a journalist and an author of 17 books, including The Song of the Dodo, The Reluctant Mr. Darwin, and Spillover. He's a three-time recipient of the National Magazine Award and has received several awards for his many books. Today, he's joined me to talk about his most recent book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. David, welcome back to Science for the People. Thank you, Rochelle. It's great to talk with you, and it's great to be back on the show. I appreciate the invitation. So I just want to start by setting the timeline here. The pandemic starts in December 2019, January 2020, and this book is published in, I believe, October 2022. Um, Before we get too far into what's in the book, I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the process story here, in (laughs) part because of this timeline. So uh, what I'm most curious about right off the bat is, at what point did you think during all of this, I'm going to write a book about COVID? I thought that... In April, I believe it was, of 2020, when my publisher, Simon & Schuster, asked me if I would do a book on the pandemic. I was busy on a different book, a very different book for them on contract, a book about cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon. I had spent the month of February 2020 in Tasmania, the island state south of mainland Australia, crashing around in the bush with Tasmanian devil biologists who were studying the very peculiar but illuminating contagious form of cancer that is taking down the population of the Tasmanian devil. Uh, I'd written about that 15 years earlier for Harper's Magazine, and I I'd wanted to get back to it for a book and finally got back to it, flew to Tasmania, started work on this. Um, but in the meantime, this virus started to emerge in the city of Wuhan. And I was hearing a lot about it. And I was getting a lot of getting a lot of email traffic saying, would would you please talk to us about this virus from China Central Television, Russian Television, CNN, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and other and podcasts and things. Because I had published the book Spillover in 2012, which essentially predicted a, a not because I was prescient, but predicted because I listened to the right scientist, a pandemic that would be caused by a virus, a single-stranded RNA virus, possibly a coronavirus coming out of a wild animal, possibly a bat, oh, someplace such as a wet market in China. So I had published all that in 2012, and now people were saying, how the hell did you know this was going to happen? And talk to us about this pandemic. So I split my time in Tasmania between following the devil biologists around who were following the devils around and doing this media response on the subject of the pandemic. And then I got on a plane and flew back to Montana on March 2nd. And soon after that, 
Simon & Schuster said, would you do a book on the pandemic for us? Push that cancer book aside. We'll give you a new contract. Um, and I said, I, I thought about it carefully for five seconds and then said yes, uh, because I re- felt like it was a duty to do this. Um, and then I had to figure out how, uh, how in the world am I going to write this book when I can't travel, which is usually foundational to the way I write a nonfiction book. One of my operating principles is go there. Uh, and there was a deadline, uh, December 31st of 2021. So I would have a year and a half to write this book about the subject that a lot of other people were going to write books about. I had to figure out how to do it without being able to go to the field. And I had to figure out a way to make it uniquely valuable amid what I knew would be a a large gaggle of other pandemic books. Um, And uh, at the very end of, I, I won't go into what I did for the rest of 2020, but I didn't solve those questions until the very end, like Christmas of 2020. And then I got the idea of doing what I did in Breathless, which is essentially uh, make the virus, SARS-CoV-2, the central character, write about the science of the virus, the origins and evolution of the virus and its fierce journey through the human population, and about the scientists around the world who study it. Uh, And I decided I would contact 60 or 70 of the world's leading virologists, epidemiologists, other experts working on this virus, uh, ask them to be interviewed for an hour and a half by Zoom to talk about their work, their view of this virus, and also about their life, their lives during the pandemic as not just scientists, but as as teachers, as uh, as spouses, as parents of children, as children of elderly parents. Um, and so beginning essentially January 1st of 2021, I started doing that interview it ended up being 95 sources around the world. And uh, in June, I stopped interviewing and started writing and delivered the book by the deadline. What a whirlwind, all at this time when there's so much happening, but also weirdly for all of us on a day-to-day, so little happening? That's right. Yes, yes. I am I am in my office in Bozeman, Montana, as I, as I speak with you, Rochelle. Uh, it's lined with books and files and um, journal papers piled up and file cabinets and the, the large tank in the corner where, as I've already mentioned to you, Boots the Python um, lives and keeps me company in this office. And this laptop and this pile of books that the laptop has sat on over and over and over again. For the last three years, as I've essentially lived in this office and and uh, connected with, the, I've started traveling more recently. But for for the first year or two, I scarcely left the town that I live in and and uh, operated from this office and from this laptop. One of the things I noticed about the book right away was how fast it moves. It moves so fast. It's got short, very short chapters and lots of them. And it moves from scientist to scientist to scientist extremely quickly, also jumping around the world to check in on different places and different people. It's got the most kind of thriller-esque feel that I've found in a popular science book. Um, Was that 
fast pace intentional or was it a side effect of the fast pace at which the virus was moving while you're in the process of trying to research it? Well, first of all, everything you've just said is music to my ears. That's the effect that I wanted this book to have. That's the feeling I wanted it to have. And this, this is even given the fact that the title, Breathless, didn't come to me until the very last minute. I had a different working title, and I could we could tell talk about the uh, the, the the title um, dilemma. <laughs> but it was a breathless effort. Uh, on the part of the scientists. It was a breathless effort on the part of me. And I wanted the book to rattle along like a like a speeding train. Yes, very intentional. And um, thriller, yes, mystery, yes. One of the things that I've um, I've found about writing about emerging diseases, particularly emerging zoonotic viruses, viruses that leap out of wildland, excuse me, tumble, spill out of wild animals and get into humans and cause disease is that every new virus like that, every new outbreak or epidemic of a, a scary, dangerous new virus begins as a mystery story. What is the virus? Have we seen it before? Where did it come from? How did it go from its natural reservoir host into humans. And so you have these scientists, this wonderful guild of scientists who specialize in this field, and they are they are the Sherlock Holmeses of this um, of this whole subject, this endeavor. They go to the field, they go wherever necessary, and they try and solve um, these mysteries of where the devil did this virus come from? How did it get into us? What are we going to do about it? And I'm uh, I'm sort of the Doctor Watson uh, to those Sherlock Holmes. I I trundle along behind them, stumbling and learning as I go, and and uh, doing my best to tell their story to the general public. It does such a great job of capturing that fast pace, but also it doesn't shortchange the science, which I feel would be super easy to do. There's still a lot of extraordinarily meaty science in here, given the pace. Was it difficult for you to balance trying to create that breathless pace and yet still bring clear science communication at the same time? It wasn't really difficult because I've been doing that for 20 or 30 years. I've been writing about some very technical matters of science, but I've been doing it for the general public, for a general audience of, of readers who enjoy nonfiction, um, and not e not even necessarily people who would identify themselves as as uh, as science interested, science nerds, fans of science. I try to write these books for anybody who likes a good read, who likes a mystery story, who likes reading about interesting people, human characters in dramatic situations, narrative with with tension, with um, with uh, in some cases with with dire possibilities and and um, uh, and very serious implications, but also with wonder, the wonder of of creatures, the wonder of evolution, the wonder of of wild remote places. Uh, that's what I've been doing for um, for the last, uh, I guess, since since about 1988, um, when I started my first 
major nonfiction book, The Song of the Dodo, about island biogeography, this field uh, that sounds very technical, island biogeography. What's that? Um, well, it's the study of how species uh, evolve, interrelate, and go extinct, not just on the islands of the world, but everywhere around the world as as our planet gets, the wild landscape gets chopped up into ecological islands, including national parks. Uh, so it's a book about evolution and extinction, and it's got human characters, including Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace in it. Um, but it's got uh, it's got narrative, it's got travel. I I'd like to think it's got humor. Um, I it's I I when I write a book like this, my my ultimate goal is write a book that makes people want to turn the pages, that makes them want the book to be longer, that's capable of making them cry in one chapter and laugh out loud in another chapter, and then see the world in a somewhat different way. That's the goal, to put those things together. And going deeply into science is part of what makes it meaty and fascinating, but you can't just go deeply into science. You have to remember the reader with every paragraph you write and ask yourself, well, that reader, is she is she tired of hearing me explain meiosis? Um, is he getting a little bit sick of hearing about the history of molecular phylogenetics? Is it time for me to change the scene? Is it time for me to, to set off a bomb or tell a joke or drop a um, uh, push a push a, a metal garbage can down the basement stairs to wake everybody up. Um, so I think about those things and try and create a, a mix of a mix of flavors that includes um, you know, very meaty science. Well, it was a great read. It was a fast paced read, and I got a lot of information from it that I didn't know. So uh, I would say um, excellent work on that. Um, and since you teased a little bit, I now am interested in what is the story of the title that you hinted at? Oh, okay. The title. Yes. Well, titles, titles, as I'm sure you know, can be tricky. Titles of books, especially. I have long believed that um, uh, titles, really good titles come to you easily or not at all. And, um, and when, and usually that means a, a really good title comes to you at the beginning of the book project. And if it doesn't, um, then you're going to have to struggle later on. Um, but that's not always true. That's been true for me in the past. Uh, my book, The Song of the Dodo, was written under that title. Um, and um, no less a, a, a fellow author and a, an admired scientist than Edward O. Wilson who is a character in that book and his science is explained in that book. He was the founder of this, one of the co-founders of this field of island biogeography, among all the other things that Edward O. Wilson did. He told me at one point um, when I interviewed for him for that book and I told him the working title, he said, don't let anybody try and change that title. The song of the Dodo is it and should be it. Uh, but with this book, I had a different working title. Uh, I delivered this book under a title that um, was the best I could do. Um, it was not great. It was a little bit bland. I was calling it a novel virus, a novel mm -hmm. virus. And of course, that term has sort of spooky um, 
uh, a spooky resonance when it's um, understood in the context of a new virus that has emerged into humans and is causing really, really bad disease and the danger of a pandemic. Scientists call that a novel virus. It's an understatement. And this one was called a novel virus at the beginning. So I wrote the book under that title. I delivered it to Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster was very happy to get it on time. They loved the book. Um, We did the editing. I did the fact-checking. We were going into into, uh, the copy editing phase. And, And my editor, a wonderful editor named Bob Bender, said, but David, we're not satisfied with the title and the marketing people aren't satisfied with the title. We need to think up something that's a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more catchy, a little bit more punchy than a novel virus. And so he and I and the team at Simon & Schuster and my wife, Betsy, who has also um, written some books, um, anguished looking for another title. And Simon & Schuster proposed some options that I didn't like, and I proposed some options that they didn't like, and we got down to the deadline for deciding, and we had something that they had proposed, and it was okay, but I didn't really like it that much, Um, but I thought I was going to have to live with it. And Betsy, my wife, came into my office here and sat down and said, all right, let's, let's think about this a little bit more. Let's not give up. Let's let's brainstorm a little bit about and and the title of the their suggestion at that point was catching the virus, catching the virus, mm-hmm. Double meaning the scientists were trying to catch the virus. People were catching the virus, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, um, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm not thrilled with it and I but I can live with it. But I would be sad to publish a book that I care about this much, a book that I feel works as well as this one and not have the right title. So Betsy sat with me here and we brainstormed a little bit and she said, well, catching the virus. No, no, no. But what about catching our breath? And I thought about that and I ran it around on on my tongue for just a, a few seconds. And then I said, no, but breathless. Breathless, breathless. And I knew immediately that there were a number of other works that had been titled Breathless. The great Jean-Paul Bamondo movie by Jean-Luc Godard, Au bout de souffle, in English, Breathless. And there have been romance novels titled Breathless. But you can't copyright a title. Nobody owns a one-word title. And sometimes it's okay um, to put a new meaning to it. So, I immediately emailed Simon & Schuster and said, here's my latest suggestion, and I think this should be it, Breathless, and then a subtitle. And Bob Bender said, hmm, hmm, hold on, let me go down the corridor and and focus group this (laughs) around with some of my colleagues. And half an hour later, he emailed me back and said, that's it. Everybody loves it. Everybody's good with it. That's the title. Wow. It's uh it's it's interesting how sometimes when you hear a good title, you just know right away it there's something about it that feels right. Well, I hope you feel that way about this title. I do. It was a really good title, and it's one of those titles that makes more sense as you read it. It just works on a lot of different levels once you get into the book, as we talked about it being very fast paced. So I 
I thought it was great. Good. Well, I consider myself very, very lucky to have um, to have violated what I thought was a pattern, which is that if you don't get a terrific title at the beginning, you're not going to get one at all. And and this one, I feel like it's just right. I'm glad that you feel like it's just right. But um, we we snatched this title from the jaws of defeat uh, at the very last minute. Very poetic. So flipping over away from the process to the actual uh, story in the book, um, can you walk us through a little bit of those early days of COVID where the book starts off? That first couple of months in 2020 were so intense for the global scientific community and its leaders, and the book really captures this. Well, they were intense, and they were important, and they were confusing, and they were consequential and controversial uh, and exciting in not particularly positive ways. Um, And so I wanted to capture that. And I don't make, uh, uh, I'll say this as a parenthetically, Rochelle, when I write a book, I do a lot of research, and I have a sense of what I want to cover. And I create uh, I, I create a, a list of of chapter titles. I consider the, the the large titled sections within the book my chapters. In this case, there are eight chapters, and then there, are, as you mentioned, there are these short numbered sections which run. The numbers run um, sequentially all the way through the book, and and uh, section thirty four follows immediately on section upon section thirty three, and section sixty seven picks up just where section sixty six left off. And that's part of how I try and maintain momentum. But I don't make outlines. I don't make an outline of the book. I just have the chapter titles to remind me what I want to cover. And then I just start to write. And I I want the, I care deeply about structure in a book, um, but I want it to be organic. I want it to grow rather than to be sort of schematic and boring. So I started writing this without an outline. I just knew, okay, uh, First news of this is breaking in the middle of December in Wuhan, China. Who's the right person to help me tell that part of the story? And I've got my 95 transcripts from my 95 interviews, and I immediately say, well, this this Chinese-born American coronavirus biologist named Henry Yi's Lee, who's working at a lab in Philadelphia, uh, a coronavirus lab, and who starts getting messages in mid-December from his friends back in Shanghai, who have who fellow virologists, who have heard rumors from the city of Wuhan that there is a respiratory syndrome breaking out. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody even knows that it's a virus for sure. Nobody knows whether it's transmissible. But he starts to hear these rumors on WeChat, this um, this app that he and you know millions of other people, including a, a whole lot of Chinese people, use to to communicate. So I uh, and I had interviewed him. So I started with him, and then I shifted to the lab leader, the, a woman Susan Weiss, who's been a coronavirus expert for forty years. He was working in her lab. He tells her, this is like the the last days of December 2019. He tells her something is going on. And then um, people start to say it's a virus. And they start to say, we've seen sections of its genome. Sections of its genome have been sequenced. It looks like a coronavirus. Susan Weiss hears that. And she says, well, we're going to work on this. Gear up. Start ordering a whole lot 
more N95 masks and personal protective equipment. We're going to work on this new virus. She gears up her lab. And then in the first days of January, um, oh, I focus on a couple of different characters. One is Yongzhen Zhang in the city of Shanghai, um, a scientist who works uh, on viruses such as this. He gets a hold of some samples from patients in Wuhan. Uh, they are shipped to him in a metal container by train to his laboratory in Shanghai. He sets his lab to working on sequencing, trying to get an entire genome sequence of this new, what they now know as a virus. Uh, and they do that within 40 hours of intense work. So now it's January 5th and they have a full genome sequence. He is in touch with one of the world's leading molecular evolutionary virologists, um, Eddie Holmes, Edward C. Holmes, an Englishman now based in Sydney. And he is emailing Eddie saying, call me immediately. We have to write a, a journal paper about this, about this new virus and you're going to help me interpret the genome. Um, and so they start to communicate. Uh, it gets to be around January 7th. Um, they are composing a journal paper, but Eddie is saying, Zhang, we've got to release the sequence publicly. We, you've got the sequence of this thing. The, the sequence of a coronavirus is 30,000 letters long, 30,000 letters of RNA, which for purposes of processing is translated into DNA because the DNA molecule is more stable. So it's this 30,000 um, letter um you know, printout of the genome, Eddie is saying, we've got to release this to the public. People will need this to develop diagnostic tests. They'll need it to begin working on, uh, on vaccines. They'll need it um, to understand where this virus came from and what it might do. We've got to release it. But meanwhile, scientific authorities in China have said, all you scientists working on this new virus, stop working on it. Do not talk about it. Do not communicate with internationally about it. Do not publish on it. So there is great pressure to suppress scientific information about it. And I tell this whole story. I don't, I, I don't know how much you want me to recap, but there's a certain point um, on the morning of January 11th, Beijing and Sydney time, Eddie calls Zhang on the phone, Zhang is buckling himself into a plane. He's been called to, to Beijing to talk with his with his uh, with his bosses, with his superiors about this virus. Um, he's under pressure not to not to publish anything on it. He buckles himself into the into the seat on the plane. They're starting to close the door. His phone rings. It's Eddie Holmes in Sydney saying, "Zhang, we've got to release this genome." Zhang says, "All right, Eddie. I'll tell my. I'll call my postdoc right now, and I'll have him send you the the genome, and you can release it on that website run out of Edinburgh, Scotland, known as Virological, and when we'll take it public. And then the door closes, and he's in the air for three hours at thirty thousand feet, incommunicado, so nobody can stop him. Eddie gets the genome, and in fifty-two minutes, he passes it along to." a scientist named Andrew Rambo, who runs the virological.org website out of Edinburgh. And they, they create a little introductory paragraph and they explain to people, um, this is a genome from the laboratory of Yongzhen Zhang. You can use it, you can share it, you can publicize it further. 
We're putting no constraints on it whatsoever. Here is the genome of this new virus. Boom, 30,000 letters. It goes up public on Virological at about 1 a.m. Edinburgh time, which is, and then that's uh, um, early Saturday morning, January 11th. That's Friday evening in Washington, D.C. and Bethesda, where Tony Fauci is waiting for this genome, where Barney Graham of the Vaccine Research Center, who has been has spent years developing an mRNA method to make vaccines quickly, he's waiting for it. They get this genome on Friday evening at about 8 or 9 p.m. They immediately call their postdocs, their labs, and say, everybody get ready. It's time for us to move. We've got the genome. We've got to create a vaccine. And Within 65 days of receiving that, the first clinical trial of the Moderna vaccine based on that genome developed by Barney Graham at the Vaccine Research Center and a number of his colleagues, the first dose goes into a human arm 65 days later. And then on November 20th of 2020, um, the clinical trials are over, phase one, two, and three. The vaccine has sh been shown to be 94.1% efficacious, and it starts being administered to the public, to people like you and me. Hearing the number 65 days as the marker between when the genome was made available to people, the first sequence genome, and when the first vaccine started to go into its first trials, that really puts the speed of the vaccine into a kind of stark perspective. And I say this as somebody who um, last year did an interview with someone about the speed of the vaccine development for COVID. This, hearing the 65 days really made me go, whoa. Yeah, 65 days was was amazing was fast but think of some of those other time get, um periods eddie holmes had headed in his possession for possession for 52 minutes here is one of the world's leading interpreters of viral genomes and he gets this viral genome in his office in sydney and he communicates with his friend andrew rambo in edinburgh and and they put this thing up and Eddie doesn't even take time to um, to start to analyze it himself. As he told me, you know, I didn't know what this genome was. It could have been bloody glowworm DNA. We just published it. Um, and so Barney Graham had it on Friday evening rather than Saturday morning or two weeks later. What I find it... There was a lot that happened during the pandemic that I think made a lot of people feel so down on, you know, the world a little bit and the people in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but these moments, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when you have these scientists just pushing this information out fast and quick and at so many moments just going above and beyond and just, we got to get this out. We got to get it out in public quickly, fast now, because the sooner we do that, the more eyes and expertise and actions we can take faster. And to actually get a chance to kind of sit on the shoulders of these people in those moments um, was 
it brought a little hope back <laughs> in yeah, a time yeah. that had been a little hopeless in places, right? The vaccine story is the great success story of, of COVID. Yes, it's the bright spot in this very dark picture. And um, these scientists, as you say, they acted quickly. Um, they acted honorably. They acted bravely. And they acted at some consequence to themselves. In some cases, for instance, Yang Zhenjian has suffered consequences. His his lab after, you know, he eventually he had to land in Beijing and, um, you know, it was known then that the, that the genome had been released through Edinburgh. Um, he got in some trouble. His lab was closed for, quote unquote, rectification. And even Eddie Holmes does not know exactly how things have been going for his colleague Yang Zhenjiang since then. But there, um, there seem to have been um, career consequences for, for him and for some of the other scientists, including some that I talked to, some others that I talked to, um, for their, um, their courage and their openness. You know, people talk about how, how closed the Chinese have been, how the lack of transparency about this. Well, that's uh, that's true of Chinese officialdom, but it's not true of Chinese scientists. There have been some courageously open Chinese scientists doing work and uh, communicating it to the world and uh, and and interacting with their colleagues. Yang Zhenjiang, Zheng Li Shi of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, KYUN of the University of Hong Kong. Um, some of the people that I was lucky to get as part of my list of 95 so scientists now have their hands on a sequenced genome of this virus that's come out of China. What features of this virus started to stand out to scientists as people started to actually analyze it? Yes, that's a good question. A loaded question, as you know. Um, well, there were two features. First of all, the the first news that, that leaked out um, was this virus is SARS-like. It's similar to the original SARS virus of 2003. And that scared people because the original SARS virus had been a very dangerous virus. It uh, it came out of Southern China, got, got out to the world through the Hong Kong airport, um, among other ways. Um, uh, there were outbreaks in, in Toronto and Bangkok and Beijing and uh, Singapore, bad outbreaks, but it was contained, ended up infecting 8,000 people and killed 800. So a 10% case fatality rate. Um, but we were very lucky that it had been contained and it was contained partly because there was no transmission to speak of from asymptomatic cases. And the scientists that I talked to, to when I was researching spillover 10, 15 years ago said, well, we really dodged a bullet with SARS. That would have been so much worse if there had been transmission from asymptomatic cases. And then comes this virus in, in which, of course, we have rampant transmission from asymptomatic cases. And we didn't dodge a bullet. We got hit square in the chest by that bullet with this one. Um, but um, so scientists said, well, this is SARS-like and that's scary. And then they had the full genome and they said, well, it's 80% similar to the original SARS. And that's scary. And then they looked at the genome more carefully and they said, it's got a couple of um, peculiar uh, characteristics in it that aren't in the original SARS. Uh, and both of them are related to how 
the spike protein. Um, the spike protein is the proteins protein that, that makes up those little grappling hooks on the outside of the, the viral sphere. Um, the spikes with which the virus catches hold of cells uh, and in, in order to um, insert its genome into those cells, infect the cells and make more copies of itself. So the spike protein is very important. Scientists started looking at the spike protein and they saw a couple of unusual features in it that made it more effective of doing what it does, which is latching onto cells. One of those is called the receptor binding domain that helps it bind to, um, to molecules, receptor molecules on the outside of cells. Uh, and the other is called the furin cleavage site that helps the, the spike sort of um, fuse itself to um, the envelope uh, of a cell, the cell membrane, and not envelope, but the cell membrane and insert itself, insert the genome into the cell. So these two things both are, are features that allow the virus to latch onto and enter cells better um, than otherwise. And so the question arose, where did these things come from? This receptor binding domain and this furin cleavage site. And there was hubbub around that um, because they had not been in the original SARS virus and they had not been seen in any other SARS-like viruses of which science had, you know, a, a number um, that had been sequenced. Um, and so some people said, well, uh, if those are unusual, they must have been engineered in there. This must be an engineered virus. Somebody created this thing in a laboratory. This is a nightmare virus created in a lab to infect humans because it's got these two features. And other scientists said, wait, 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 hold on a minute. Um, you're jumping to conclusions. Um, there are lots of other ways where these um, by which these two features could have gotten into this virus. Um, for instance, coronaviruses are very capable of swapping sections with other coronaviruses when they infect the same host. They're replicating themselves inside a single cell, maybe two different strands of coronavirus at the same time, and they can get overlapped and the replicating machinery bounces from one template to another. And instead of having copies of of coronavirus A and copies of coronavirus B, you end up with a hybrid that's coronavirus AB, essentially coronavirus C, and that comes busting out of the cell and it contains whole sections of genome um, that weren't in uh, coronavirus A. Recombination, that's called. It's very important and very well known to be important in coronaviruses. And that is the other explanation for how uh, unusual features can get um, can get patched in to a coronavirus very quickly. So that conversation, that debate began. Is this a natural virus, a naturally evolved virus that spilled over from a wild animal? Probably a horseshoe bat um, got into an intermediate mammal um, and got into humans probably by way of that wet market in the city of Wat of Wuhan, the Wanan seafood wholesale market, or is this an engineered virus that uh, was either intentionally or accidentally leaked from a laboratory? And I dissect that whole controversy in one long chapter of the book, as you know, um, and uh, and consider 
most, if not all, of the major arguments for those two schools of thought, which I think of as the um, the natural origins school of thought and the nefarious origins school of thought. Um, and there is a lot of empirical evidence pointing toward natural origins, and there is a lot of suspicion and accusation and coincidence um, on the side of um, nefarious origins. But no positive evidence. Um, this virus, a form of this virus, is never known to have existed in a lab in the city of Wuhan or anywhere else. Um, and if it didn't exist in the lab, it couldn't be leaked from a lab. Uh, and there's a criticism of the kinds of experiments um, that are done to examine how viruses might evolve. Um, and some of those criticisms of what's called gain-of-function um, research are made by very, very reputable scientists, such as David Relman of Stanford, whom I interviewed. But there is no positive evidence that this virus ever existed uh, in a lab to be subjected to gain-of-function research. So I find it Highly, highly, highly likely that this is a, a virus with a natural origins from a, a wild animal uh, and not theoretically impossible, but completely unsupported that it is something that leaked from a laboratory. Where the COVID virus originated from has become such a topic of concern and speculation, and as you say, suspicion since quite early on in the pandemic, and a topic that you cover quite extensively in your book. Um, for a moment, I just want to set aside the origin theories that center around COVID having been intentionally manufactured by humans for one purpose or another, just for a second. And I want to focus on what I what I personally think is probably the much more likely origin story for this virus, uh, which I believe you share. Um, a lot of scientists have spent a lot of time trying to understand where COVID came from, where and how and when it first entered the human population. And just to have the direct and maybe slightly harsh question out there, why? What does knowing these specifics get us? Why is it so important for us to know where and why and how? Yes, right. Um, well, I... Uh, I, and I address that in the book. I think there are two reasons why it's important to know if we can know, or at least seek to know the origins of this virus. First of all, because if you um, if you believe um, this is um, a virus with natural origins um, and it's spilled over into humans because of the kinds of disruptive contact we humans have with wild animals, then you it, that leads to two things. First of all, it, it implies we need more science. We need more scientists studying the viruses that live and the dangerous viruses, potentially dangerous viruses that live in wild animals and, and what makes those viruses dangerous. We need to understand that better. We need to be studying um, these things in the wild, the ecology of wild viruses, in the, the reservoir hosts that they inhabit, and in the laboratory, um, the, the nature of the genomes of these viruses and how they change. If you believe that this virus um, resulted from uh, 
careless gain of function research in a laboratory and was leaked carelessly from a laboratory, then the implication of that is we need less science. We need less of that kind of science. We need science to, to stop doing that, to stop studying these these different viruses. And we need to stop supporting that with, with public money. Those are two very different outcomes. That makes it important, this question. The other thing that makes this question important is that if you believe that it's um, a virus, uh, a natural virus that spilled over into humans the way so many others have in the last 60 years, Machupo virus and Marburg virus and Hendra virus and Nipah virus and Ebola virus and the original SARS virus and MERS virus, all of these things came these viruses came from wild animals uh, originally, got into humans because of the kinds of contact that humans have with wild animals, disruptive contact, uh, whether it's um, cutting down tropical forests and building timber camps and, and mining camps where people eat um, wild animals because they need protein, the laborers do, or, or catching wild animals and shipping them to markets for sale as food, um, not just subsistence food, but luxury food, prestige food, um, these other kinds of contact with wild animals. If uh, If you believe this is another in that series, then it tells us that we all bear some responsibility because we all bear responsibility for those kinds of ecological disruption that puts humans in conflict with wild animals, um, including the mining of cobalt and coltan in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo to go into the laptop that I'm talking to you on and the, the laptop that you're talking to me on and the cell phone that's sitting here by my desk. So I'm, I'm implicated in this too, uh, because those miners eat bushmeat because they don't have grocery stores out there in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. They are our proxies. They are doing this for us because we demand coltan and cobalt. If you believe this is a virus leaked from a laboratory uh, by reckless scientists doing research, then it's not everybody's responsibility. It's those idiots over there. It's those reckless scientists over there point the finger at them and um, feel smug and feel exonerated and feel not responsible for it. Just go ahead and accuse them and tell them not to do it anymore. Again, these are two very different conclusions um, to be reached um, based on understanding the origins of this virus. I think as well, it's also a little bit, at least for me, it's also about one of those feels like it has an easy solution, right? It's like you say, it's shutting down a much smaller number of people who are doing experiments we don't like. Whereas the other problem feels insurmountably hard to solve. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it, it does feel insurmountably hard to solve. I mean, you know, we have three really big problems on this planet, uh, Rochelle. Um, Climate change, the loss of biological diversity by the extinction of species, destruction of habitat, and that sort of thing, and um, the threat of emerging pandemic disease. And it's not that one is the cause of the others. It's not that climate change is the cause of everything bad. Climate change is a horrible problem, but it is a parallel problem rather than an encompassing problem relative to these other two problems. And the ultimate cause of all three of those problems is we have 8 billion hungry people on this planet who want to consume food and other forms of resource, um, including fossil fuel and 
in doing that, we are um, we are creating an imprint, a footprint, um, a heavy footprint on um, the, the 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 natural world of this planet that is causing these three plot problems, climate change, loss of biological diversity, and the emergence of um, dangerous new viruses. So when we're talking about COVID as a coronavirus, and then looking back at the two other major coronaviruses that formed um, our sort of big viruses that loom in our minds in the last 20 years, SARS and MERS, Mm -hmm. what made COVID so different? Because I was in Canada still when SARS hit, and I remember reading a lot about it. There was a lot of concern. I heard a little bit about MERS, but obviously that was uh, in a very different part of the world. Um, So I heard a lot less about it, but I did hear a lot about SARS uh, when it was ongoing. And then it it just kind of sputtered out. Yeah. Um, Well, um, but um, SARS didn't sputter out, although a lot of people are inclined to um, to say that or to believe that um, it didn't it didn't burn out. Um, we stopped it, and by we I mean they, the scientists and public health officials who managed to contain it. Uh, as I as I said, it it um, you know it spilled over into humans in in southern China in one of the cities of the Pearl River Delta, just west of. City of the island city of Hong Kong. It got to Hong Kong in the body of one man, a physician who who went to Hong Kong for a family wedding and got very sick on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel. He started um, spreading virus and and spread it to other people on the ninth floor of the Metropole Metropole Hotel. They got onto airplanes, finishing their Hong Kong vacation, flew to Toronto, flew to Singapore, flew to Bangkok, and a few other places. And took this new virus with them, and then Hong Kong. I'm sure, and then Toronto. I'm sure that you. One of the reasons you heard a lot about it in Canada was because Toronto was um, was very heavily hit, um, but it didn't burn out. It was contained. It was stopped. Once they realized that it was a very dangerous respiratory virus that was spreading, um, particularly to healthcare workers who were dealing with the respiratory crises of these first patients, like here's a, here's a guy who's having a respiratory crisis, uh, and um, he's a very very heavy man and he's got a bad heart, and we need to intubate him as quickly as possible. So four or five healthcare workers. Um, gather around this coughing, spewing, sputtering man who's, you know, a couple steps from cardiac arrest, and they try and intubate him as he is spewing SARS virus out to them, and they don't know it. They don't know enough about this virus to be protecting themselves. They're not even wearing masks. So a lot of healthcare workers got infected by SARS-1, and one in 10 infected people died but it was not transmissible from asymptomatic cases. So as soon as public health officials figured out what was going on, they instituted draconian measures of containment, um, isolation, um, mandatory isolation in some places, such as Singapore. Uh, And we were lucky that Um, those measures were instituted. And we were also lucky in where the virus went. It went to, as I said, Toronto. Um, It was in Hong Kong. It was in Singapore. It was in Ho Chi Minh City, 
if I recall correctly. Um, or no, maybe it was Hanoi. And it was in Beijing. And those were all strong government places, to put it mildly, with strong healthcare systems. If that virus had gone to a place that was a little bit more um, wild and open and underserved with healthcare, where the governance is not so orderly and strong, for instance, Kinshasa or Lagos, that scenario might have gone in a very, very different way. MERS also not tremendously contagious from human to human. Uh, It is transmissible from human to human, but not as easily transmissible as this virus, which is, um, which even in its original form coming out of Wuhan was extremely effective at transmitting from human to human, even from asymptomatic humans to other people. And it has gotten only much, much better at that um, over the course of evolving its variants and subvariants over the last three years. So this is um, this is not the ultimate nightmare virus because its case fatality rate is still quote unquote only about one percent, uh, but its transmissibility is very 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 high, um, and therefore it's different from any coronavirus that we had dealt with before. Given what you know about the virus, given your research and the 90 plus scientists that you talked to, some who were very close to the early days of the science done on COVID, do you think there was a moment or a time, even if it was really early on, where we could have stopped it, where we had a chance to stop it, or did does this one to you feel like a Pandora's box that couldn't be closed? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, my inclination is to say we always have to believe that there is a point when we could have stopped stopped it. We have to believe that um, because we have to continue um, trying to stop these things. We have to, to do better to stop the next one. We have to identify... Um, where we went wrong, when we missed an opportunity, what we could have done that we didn't do. We need much, much improved systems of surveillance and response against novel viruses that emerge into humans so that when there is a cluster of atypical pneumonia cases in a place like the city of Wuhan, there will be action taken and information shared very early on internationally and at the scene so that um, the first assumption is, well, these people, this is not just coincidence that these people are suffering respiratory diseases. This is probably caused by a virus. And if it's respiratory, it's probably transmissible from human to human. And we need absolute isolation of these people. We need immediate sequencing of the genome. We need identification of what this thing is. Then we're going to need diagnostic tests and contact tracing and mandatory isolation uh, of of cases. Um, And you get into a number of measures that, um, that involve the tension between public health and civil liberties. Um, We have to deal with that. Now, 
before the next one arrives. We have to be talking about these things. We have to be talking about how to increase the quality and strength of our international surveillance, our sharing of information and resources to detect these things very early on, not when there's a couple of hundred cases, um, but when there's a couple of dozen cases or even fewer. The alarm bells need to ring loud and there needs to be a response. And we need to be talking in the meantime about uh, about how the public understands or fails to understand science, how the public trusts or fails to trust science, um, how science is done, what science is, and the tension that I just mentioned between civil liberties and public health. Uh, we've got we've got a lot of scientific research and development, um, education of scientists and, um, and technical people and education of the public and political leaders that has to be done. Um, and if, if we do that, then it's possible that when we face a parallel situation, you, you know, there are 18 people who have an atypical pneumonia at a city somewhere in the world, a city in the U.S. or a city in the Netherlands or a city in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in China, that we can we can tie a noose around that outbreak or, or put a bubble over it and and control it before it spreads. We we um, we need to believe that we can do that, and we need to believe that we could have done that with this virus. We need to not become fatalistic for any of these outbreaks and say, well, there was just nothing that was going to be possible in that case. I love that idea of we have no choice but to believe we can, otherwise we won't try. And I think that is the most important message that we can take away is if we don't try, we've definitely lost and we won't know if we can succeed until we try, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this book had a deadline. And when that deadline comes upon you, the pandemic is very much still ongoing. So my question to you is, if your deadline had been later, had been six months later, a year later, past that, what would the next chapter have been about? Well, the next chapter would have been, I, uh, I think, an adumbration of the principles that I already described in the book. So I'm not sorry at all about the deadline that I had of the end of 2021. Um, essentially, as I was, as I was in the clubhouse turn in the home stretch of this book, the latest thing that was happening was the emergence of Omicron, the original Omicron, before the diversification of subvariants. Of Omicron. The Omicron was something that we hadn't seen before, um, and it threatened the capacity to uh, e escape even the wonderful vaccines um, that we had developed. Omicron was a big deal, and, and the story of Omicron continues now. It's a very complex, fascinating, consequential story, but I don't regret having had to end the book um, with the emergence of Omicron, because I hope that the book contains the principles by which people can understand the continuing evolution of this virus and other viruses, and the continuing ecological situation of this virus being a parasite on the human population and spreading to other animals, 
to other wild animals, white-tailed deer um, and rodents and mink on mink farms. And the fact that this virus is not only in us, but it's all around us now, and it's going to be with us forever. Um, I hope that the book, even though it stops in uh, the timeline stops in late 2021, I hope it's a tool that will be very um, helpful to people in understanding what goes on with Omicron and its subvariants next week, and what goes on with vaccine development and um, the development of booster regimes and uh, and all the other changes that are likely to come later this year and next year. I I believe and I hope that the book um, gives people um, a very solid grounding in how to understand the, the continuing, um, as I said, a fierce journey of this virus through the human population. Thinking about the thriller nature of the book, I remember when I got to the end thinking, I feel like this book hasn't ended. And of course, it hasn't. I mean, the book ended, obviously, but the story hasn't ended. The story in the book hasn't ended because we're still in the story now. And I remember thinking, this feels somehow more urgent and more real because I realize I'm in the story of the book I've just read, um, which is an interesting kind of place to be in your brain when you've just read something you describe as a thriller. Um, and there's a part of me as I'm thinking that about flinging farther into the future um, in 10 years or 15 years, people who read this book and hit this, the ending of the book, which is still very much in the middle of the story of the pandemic, of this pandemic anyway. Um, and I'm, I just can't help but cast my mind forward in time to try and extrapolate and understand how this book will read to people who are farther removed from the experiences, who aren't living through the experiences, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting um, mental exercise. I, I don't know how this book will read in 10 years either. Um, I hope, as I've said, that it'll still be very solid and useful and valid and accurate and interesting um and and even in a in a grim way entertaining if it's okay to say that about uh, this horrible event that humanity has been through um still you want people um you know, you know it's a book it's a literary product um, um it's not just an act of um of informing when i write a nonfiction book i i try and create a piece of literary art, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. And so I, I hope that uh, as, as grim and, and, and saddening as so much of this is, I hope that, that there is some, um, some satisfaction uh, in reading the book. And I hope that we'll still be there 10 years from now. Uh, people tell me that um, people who read my 2012 book, Spillover, in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic people have told me that they got they got chills it was spooky um to see how much of this had been foreseeable not again not by my prescience but because i listened to the scientists who could see all this coming um this is a different sort of book so i i'm, I'm not sure how how it will 
uh, play uh, in 10 years. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I, for one, am glad I had the opportunity to read it uh, this week. So thank you so much for your time, David. It's been great talking to you, and it was a great book. Thank you very much, Rochelle. A real pleasure talking with you. Um, I And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your um, letting me uh, take us all into the weeds a little bit. A, a, a pleasure to have a serious conversation with you. It was lovely. And if you want to learn more about David Quammen, his books, or his other writing, we will have links to click in the show notes for this episode as usual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 